Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're here on the podcast to try and break down some of the tougher compliance issues that are in front of employers these days. Today, Suzanne, we are going to hit on some recommended policy changes to help stabilize employee benefit programs as employers get back to work during this pandemic. So, Suzanne, can you give us an introduction to these recommendations? Yeah, so what I thought would be important is, as employers are getting back to work, that we talk about the issues which would be helpful from a policy perspective to make this return to work easier on employers and employees. Uh, We work closely with the American Benefits Council, which is uh, in Washington, D.C. They work closely with Congress and the executive branch, and they have developed some very sound, I think, public policy recommendations that are aimed at protecting the viability of the employer-sponsored market. Um, As you know, that's what we certainly serve, and and the employer-sponsored market supports tens of millions of people in the U.S. um, by providing coverage for them. So we're going to look at some of the public policy changes to support employees on furlough or those who have been terminated. We'll look at increased access and affordability to the individual market, flexibility of on-site clinics, direct primary care, telehealth, and flexibility of certain payments with HSAs, FSAs. All of these recommendations are to support the employees and the employers in these pandemic times. Great. So it sounds like a lot to tackle. Uh, But let's start off with that uh, first uh, topic of continued coverage. Again, we're talking about those who may have lost eligibility for the group health plan by uh, furlough or through employment termination. Right. Yeah. So during the pandemic, obviously, many employers are seeking to continue to provide benefits to their furloughed employees. We have Mm -hmm. a lot of generous employers out there that want to do so. Um, Millions of other workers have lost their jobs and they are facing the prospect of paying for the full cost of COBRA health coverage, which we know can be very expensive. And at the same time, you've got countless employers that are continuing to provide health coverage to their remaining employees, even though they themselves are in an economic distress. So we are looking at policy recommendations that can support uh, this environment. So to begin with, we would ask Congress to provide a subsidy of no less than 90% of premiums for COBRA continuation coverage. And we'll discuss what's before what's been discussed right now. Um, and continuation of coverage for health plans that are not subject to ERISA, like mm-hmm. a church plan. Those uh, employees are just as um, important. Um, and for workers who have re- recently lost their health insurance due to job loss or furlough uh, resulting from COVID-19 crisis. And this would allow them to retain their employer-sponsored coverage, um, whereas now they may not be able to do so because of the high cost of COBRA. Right. So I think that's a very important feature. The guidance recently issued from the executive branch significantly extended the COBRA election and premium payment deadlines, uh, but it really didn't do anything to address the issue of affordability. Right. So, I've got more time now to elect COBRA, to pay COBRA because of this outbreak period, but yeah, it doesn't address anything about uh, the cost. Doesn't help you pay for it. In fact, the cost can, can uh, really build up if you delay um, in making that election and you have some significant procedure, you decide you want to elect COBRA and now you've got to make up all those past right. uh, the months that are in arrears. So secondly, what we'd like to do is to reduce the risk of the future premium spikes by protecting sponsors of self-insured funds. 
uh, from extremely high claims costs. And so that's a concern out there with the COVID crisis through the development of reinsurance that would apply if costs exceed a certain threshold. Mm -hmm. So a reinsurance back backstop for our self-insured plans. And then uh, allow HSAs, health savings account balances, to pay for health insurance premiums during this federally designated public health emergency. Right now, HSAs cannot be used for that purpose, and so we'd like mm -hmm. to be able to provide some flexibility with those funds to pay for premiums during that time. What I think would be an important policy recommendation is not by ABC, but right now with employer mandate, they have to maintain a certain level of affordability through employer contributions, even though they're in a distressed time during the pandemic. So allow some flexibility there. So some loosening of the affordability uh, structure on the employer mandate. Got it. So those all make sense. Um, we know that there has been a bill in Congress talking about COBRA subsidies specifically, um, and maybe the House was in agreement on that, but the, the Senate has not taken up anything on that. What are the chances of this COBRA subsidy idea going through? Yeah, so first of all, at several times in the past, Congress has provided a partial subsidy of COBRA premiums for displaced workers. So the most recent time being the ARA in 2009. Currently, we have the House, um, the next stimulus package, which is dubbed the HEROES Act that has been passed in the House, mm -hmm. and as you said, is in, is before the Senate, and it includes a provision to subsidize 100% of COBRA premiums for workers who would otherwise lose job-based coverage due to loss of employment or reduction in hours, um, and that includes furloughed employees. So um, it is before the Senate. The, the Senate is scheduled to go on a two-week recess from July 3rd to July 17th, so deliberations will begin shortly thereafter. You asked what were the chances of it being passed. Uh, the Senate will likely uh, respond with some type of a stripped-down version. It remains to be seen whether the COBRA subsidies will survive um, the Senate, but right. we sure hope they do. Okay, so what about increasing access to and affordability of the individual market for health care coverage is sort of a response to this? So, it, you know, it's important that the individual insurance market remains stable and affordable as it complements the employer-sponsored health coverage for part-time workers, for seasonal workers, or other people who not just aren't eligible for the employer-sponsored plan. So right. some employers don't provide. There could be a smaller employer and they don't offer that type of coverage. So this priority really predates the current pandemic, but it, it's increasingly important in an environment where people are in dire need of medical treatment that have lost job-based job coverage. Mm -hmm. So we would welcome policy changes that would include increasing the individuals who qualify for premium assistance by raising those income levels above 400% of federal poverty level. I think that's an important aspect to allow those subsidies to um, be received by a, a larger group of individuals and eliminate the possibility that individuals will repay premium assistance if they happen to receive more during the year in, their, in income than they had ultimately expected. So take out that, that penalty mm -hmm. of having to repay and eliminate that. We don't want to penalize people for actually doing better than anticipated. Right. And then reduce just some of the unnecessary requirements for individuals to enroll in the individual marketplace during the pandemic. Right. Make it a little bit easier to, to get, go that route if needed. Um, so that all seems fairly reasonable. What about on-site clinics and direct primary care? Those are two different types of ways to access care, but both are kind of in the same conversation when it comes to um, an evolving way of obtaining medical services. Right, and we're gonna—they really are gonna hit on similar issues. But we'll start with on-site medical 
clinics. They obviously offer easier access to primary care and the management of chronic diseases because, as the name implies, they are located at the employer's place of business. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an issue with these clinics for individuals who are enrolled in high-deductible health plans who have HSAs. As you know, there are a lot of tax benefits with HSAs that include pre-tax deductions, um, tax-free earnings on the money that, that sits in the HSA, and then it's also tax-free when you withdraw it for qualifying health expenses. So in return, there's only certain plans can be paired with an HSA, and generally medical services cannot be provided at no cost uh, before that de- deductible has been reached. The IRS does already permit preventive care and some insignificant benefits like immunizations, physicals, aspirins. So all of those can be provided currently, even if you are enrolled in an HSA. But but anything else would prevent an employee from making HSA contributions. So currently, if they had um, provided primary care through a, a medical onsite clinic, certainly chronic, um, you know, chronic care, chronic disease care they would not be able to contribute to the HSA. And so we would ask Congress to expand the list of uh, available services for those individuals enrolled in a high-deductible health plan to include primary care services and the management of chronic conditions at on-site clinics without cost-sharing, without impacting their HSA eligibility. Mm -hmm. So on a separate but similar note, direct primary care is one um, similar in that it provides easier access to primary care services In this arrangement, you have a primary care provider who are paid a fixed monthly fee, and that allows the employees a certain number of visits or a certain uh, for primary care services without additional cost. So the employer may pick up that entire amount. Um, They may not. They may share in that cost. But what it allows then is the individual to go into uh, the DPC clinic and get care without any additional cost. So the same issues come up as with the on-site clinics as it pertains to HSA eligibility. So again, we just ask that Congress permit individuals with a DPC arrangement to contribute to HSAs and to use the HSAs to pay for those DPC-related fees. Right, and we did receive some recent guidance from the IRS confirming that direct primary care is problematic for an HSA. Right. But that could be fixed with a congressional uh, fix. If Congress says it would be okay through a law, that would... Uh, supersede anything that the IRS put out. That would essentially change the rule altogether. Right. Great. So we have an office that has done a tremendous amount of work on DPC models with great success. It's an evolving and very interesting model that certainly has its benefits. What about telehealth? We've seen uh, even state laws mandating certain coverage as it relates to telehealth. It's vital now in this time with the pandemic and difficulty actually going to the doctor's office, what changes uh, did ABC recommend here? Well, as you mentioned, we're seeing a growth of telehealth uh, services that enable, you know, families to practice social distancing yet receive the medical care that they need. The CARES Act took a positive step to support the telehealth by allowing HSA-eligible individuals to access that telehealth without cost-sharing. So you see that Congress did step up to the plate with HSAs as it pertains to telehealth. We would like them to extend that to DPC and on-site medical clinics. However, many employers also want to provide the telehealth services to employees who are not benefits eligible or who have opted out of the employer's group health plan. Um, and it's, it's important. They have you, An employer doesn't always have uh, you know, 100% of their employees covered under their plan, but yet 100% of their employees could have medical conditions at some point. If an employer wanted to provide a a standalone telehealth coverage for these types of employees, it would run afoul of the ACA market reforms. 
So we ask Congress to permit telehealth services by issuing additional accepted benefits guidance to include this type of service. Yeah, that makes sense. We don't want to step into those ACA waters that can be very choppy at the least. <laughs> and expensive. And expensive. Uh, what about FSAs? Uh, we've discussed HSA to some extent. How could we reform FSAs? And we're talking about both medical or general purpose FSAs and dependent care FSAs. Well, in the dependent care, I'll refer to as DCAP, just to make it easy. Right. But on the medical side, the problem is that individuals are not able to get non-emergency medical care for a period of time. It's what we've seen during the pandemic. And so many of them don't necessarily even want to get these elective procedures even while it's opening up again. And so they have some dollars that are sitting in their FSAs. They were anticipating a different scenario, mm -hmm. and now they're not going to be able to use these dollars. And so um, we would like to uh, enable these individuals to use these dollars for other essential personal needs because, again, people are distressed uh, financially during this time. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, some employees may even have greater medical expenses be than expected because of COVID-19. So the FSA elections could not have been even considered of taking this situation into account right now. On the DCAP side, you have child care centers that have been closed and employees that generally made DCAP elections um, based on completely different circumstances than exist today. So we're happy with the inclusion of the provision in the HEROES Act to provide flexibility for cafeteria plans, FSAs, and DCAPs. Um, but we would like similar and blah, blah. let me start that over. There has been some movement in this area, and we are happy that they have included a provision in the HEROES Act to provide flexibility for cafeteria plans, for FSAs, DCAPs concerning this crisis, and similar flexibility in the guidance from the IRS and notice 2020-29. Mm -hmm. However, it only applies um, and extends through this year. And so we would like to ask Congress to allow employers to permit employees to make changes to their FSAs and DCAPs at least once during the current year, but also into next year, because this will allow um, the employees possibly to use those funds as needed um, and to make, you know, make adjustments as needed. And we don't know how long certainly this pandemic will last. Right. Um, so allow employers to permit additional carryover of funds for health FSAs and DCAPs and longer grace periods for the expenses. Again, this would just help employees avoid forfeiture of the additional funds and, and certainly enable them to put more cash in if needed. Right. And we, as you mentioned, we do have a little bit of flexibility this year from the, the IRS notice you described to change elections on health and dependent care FSAs or DCAPs, but to memorialize that through Congress and extend it through next year with all the uncertainty that is likely going to bleed into next year would be a great assurance, I think, for most employers and employees. So while we're on that topic of COVID-19, Suzanne, there was some recent guidance that was interesting related to antibody testing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Isn't this evolving? Um, yes. So the EEOC updated their FAQs. Their FAQs are titled What You Should Know About COVID-19 and the ADA, the Rehabilitation Act, and other EEOC laws. And so it, they recently updated um, some of their guidance concerning the lawful antibody testing under the ADA. COVID-19 antibody testing has recently been touted to help prevent the infection spread and to prevent infection the infection spreading in the workplace, assuming that it was reliable. Yep. And unfortunately, the science is not clear on reliability. And right. because of that, we don't know if the presence of the antibody means that an individual is completely or partially immune 
uh, to future COVID-19 infections or immune at all. There could, it may not have any impact at all. Right. So the EEOC is taking the stance that it is a medical examination under the ADA and should not be used to make decisions about returning persons to the workplace because now, it, because of its lack of reliability, it does not meet the ADA's, quote, job-related and consistent with business necessity standard for medical examination. So employers may not require an antibody test prior to allowing employees to re-enter the workplace. And this is different, remember, it's a change. than the, but it's a change, but it's also, this test is different than the test that depicts when someone has an active case of COVID-19. That oh, is right. still permitted under the ADA. So um, uh, just keep those two tests um, in mind. There is a difference in how the EEOC treats them. Right. And that test of an active case of COVID-19, they say, does meet that job-related and consistent with business necessity standard because you think about somebody who actually is positive now walking into a workplace, the right. potential for spread is much more uh, immediate. Right. So this is great. Thank you, Suzanne, for walking us through all these different um, policy recommendations and this recent update from the EEOC. And uh, I think that gets us to the end. Right. And, and as if we do see developments in these areas, we will certainly report on it both through our compl- bi-weekly compliance corner, Washington update if it's significant enough, and certainly in our podcast as well. Yes, indeed. So thank you for joining. Yes. And uh, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs>